Shall we make sweet, sweet podcast love? You're driving yeah, the boat. Alright. <laughs> driving that boat. You're the killer. You killer modiller. In five. Skin. Four. Skin that smoke wagon. Three, two, one. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Cromcast. We are your hosts for the evening. I'm Jonathan. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. And we are excited to be joining you again and joining each other through the magic of Skype and the tubes of the internet. It's another quarantined episode, but we're still trying to pump out that content to all of you so you have something sweet, sweet, sweet for your ear holes. What the heck is the internet? <laughs> I wish I knew the rest of the quote. I always screw it up, but that's there's a new one of those, right? There's a new Jay and Silent Bob. There is, and word on the street is that it is not very good. But that's too bad. I bet that you and I would probably like it. <laughs> we would probably laugh quite a bit. Probably. Just, I do think that Kevin Smith is still funny. And he's healthy. Yep, so far as we know. <laughs> I, I I have not listened to his podcast in, in quite a while now. Are you guys excited to be together again? I am. I am. Putting a... Putting a final coffin nail in the season. The Road West, the Western Road, the Dusty Trail. I can't remember all of the names that Luke has come up with for it over the course of the last few episodes. But <laughs> The Bluegrass Parkway. The Bluegrass Parkway. We are Western doing... Territory. We're doing the last episode of the Western season, and we're going to talk about a Robert E. Howard story, The Vultures of Wapiton. I don't know if that's the correct way to pronounce that. Uh, well, it's... Uh, how Luke, how do you say it? I say, uh, what, what does Alice Cooper say in, uh, in Wayne's Millie, world? Millie Wake. <laughs> Millie Wake. I say, uh, Wapeton. <laughs> and I, I took the Eastern Kentucky way and said, Wapeton. I like that. Yeah, that might be right. I can get behind. I'm that. not sure. Who knows? No, I said, I said Wapeton, but I was just trying, like, that's the, uh, that's the Arkansas equivalent of saying, like, Choctaw or uh, like one of those uh, types of terms. Whapped. Oh, yeah, like hard, like hard sort of quick consonants. But we're pretty pumped to talk about it. We think it's going to be a good story. But as usual, we're going to talk about a few other things first. What are you gentlemen drinking, starting with Luke? So uh, I've had a cup of Very Old Barton. And rather than having a second cup of Very Old Barton, I'm having... Uh, a bottle of my cider uh, just to, you know, temper myself. And uh, that's it. So I've got like a uh, homebrewed cider and I've got some uh, Kentucky bourbon. Do they mix up real nice in your belly? Uh, <laughs> right now, the cider, since the last uh, the last time I drank it, got a little bit fizzier because i think i think i, I, think it, I dr- last drank it in our like a week ago uh at that point it was just a couple days since being brewed so it was a bit sweet and as i as i suspected it's getting carbonated because there's still a bit of residual sugar in there so i gotta i gotta drink it young i gotta get it i gotta drink this bottle and i've got one more and i've got to I've got to knock that bottle out in the next week. Otherwise, I don't want something that's just like straight up carbonation and no, and no like apple apple sweet. What if, what if you uh, cold shocked it? What if you put it in the fridge now? Would I that, could. 
that that would lower the the yeast activity, I would think. So I have done that. I have like I've got a beer fridge out in the garage, and I have taken uh like the Grolsch bottles that I have. Like once I bottle them and go stow them there, and I guess from what I've noticed, I still have like some level of carbonation that happens. Sure, but yeah. but certainly it does it speeds things up. So that's that's a good point. Like right now. Actually, let's let's take a quick detour. So, <laughs> so uh, like like uh, like home homebrew apocalypse. I have uh, uh, like a super sweet high alcohol like methaglin that's ready to be bottled, and then I so, also have like some uh, like like grape wine that I've got going. What do you got, Josh? Well, I've got a, a gallon of apple cider that should be pretty sweet. I want to uh, uh, get it sparkling. Hopefully, I can. Uh, I'm going to try to use some tricks and sweeten it and, uh, let it, let it, uh, let it carbonate in the bottles. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. Um, and then I have two gallons of the ancient orange that are going. And so if this quarantine lasts for as long as I'm afraid it will, then I'll have some mead to, to get me through the tail end of it. Um, I was going to ask you though, what's in your methaglin? So, uh, the recipe for that is super easy. So Costco sells those five pound jugs of clover honey. Yeah. Right. But they also in the past, like few months have like a three pound, like Southwestern dark honey, I think. Uh, and it's basically priced the same. So it's a little bit more expensive, but I picked up, uh, one of those three pound jugs of honey. So basically it's, uh, a one gallon mix with that three pound, uh, like Southwestern dark honey from Costco. I think it's, I think that's what it is. Uh, and I brewed a, like using the one gallon of like spring water, uh, brewed, uh, a tea that was like a spiced tea. And that's where the methaglin comes in. So it's just a straight, like, herbal tea which is like heavy with cinnamon and rose hips and uh and i'm using saf ale like uh so like so4 like english ale yeast because i really like that uh, the old standby I, i like that a lot uh and yeah and so it fermented at about 13 13 and a half percent and it's still like super sweet because that's a that's a fair amount of of honey in a one gallon mix uh, so it's, it's a specific gravity of like 10, 10 and it's about 13%. So 13% wow. alcohol. So that one's going to go in wine bottles. I've been stabilizing it for the past week. So I've used like the sulfite and sorbate like steps where you add that in a couple times mm-hmm. after you rack to secondary. Uh, but it's ready to go into the, to the wine bottle. So it's ready to go. And then I have like a total, like uh county jail like grape juice like wine <laughs> <laughs> that's like uh like welch's like concentrate grape juice and cranberry juice wine that i have and it fermented out in like a week wow. uh and it's like 12 percent alcohol and it's dry like it's a it's a like a sg of like a like 1.00 oh yeah and and it's ready it's ready to go so as soon as the methylene gets bottled i'll rack over into my my other jug with the the wine, let it sit for a week or two, bottle it, and then I'm back on the cider train. Nice. If you need wine bottles, I can come uh, drop some off on your porch. 
Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think I I'm pretty good. Your, okay. your, uh, your, uh, what is it? V, uh, VWR. Yeah. Box. So, uh, I ordered a bunch of Petri plates and, and, uh, took the boxes and it turns out a sleeve of Petri plates is just the right size for, uh, storing wine bottles. So that box is about right for my standard, like bottle capacity. So right nice. now it's full. And so as I'll be bottling, like I've kind of ramped up the brewing production over the past couple of weeks and I'm expecting that I'll start. I, I haven't been corking stuff so much. I've been using the Grolsch bottles, mm-hmm. uh, but I'll probably put stuff in the wine bottles over the long term because like that, that, that high ABV, but high like sugar content, uh, methaglin is going to need to sit for a little bit. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be hot. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Yeah. Need some mellow time. We we're going to have a, a butt ton of, uh, of meads by the time that, uh, the, the pandemic subsides, hopefully we'll have, gallons of uh of mead in reserve by this fall for sure and then when when it's safe to travel again uh i've told our buddy evil ed that we're gonna bring him some some different homebrewed meads and and beers (laughs) that would be fun yeah yeah so save a bottle (laughs) save a bottle for ed (laughs) make a big viking trip so what are you drinking josh uh i've got some high life and i'm also still working on the evan williams bottle and bond uh i'm down to the dregs of it so uh, two weeks, uh, and that bottle is, is going dry. Um, I guess my bourbon consumption has, uh, stayed about the same, I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that's a good pace. Yeah. Uh, so that's I would what say I got. That's a health, that's a healthy pace. <laughs> um, trying, uh, trying to learn something from the St. Patrick's day episode. Which sounded fine. I don't know if you listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, did not. No, I no, did not you listen were to it. You were fine. Happy. What you got over there, John? Uh, I'm having some Evan Williams. Or, no, Heaven Hill tonight. Uh, Kara bought some Heaven Hill the last oh. time she went out for supplies. So I thought I'd have some of Nice. That. Yeah. Good. The green? Yes, the green label. Green green label? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big bottle or regular bottle? Uh, she did get a bigger one. Yeah. yeah. Nice. But I'm not going to drink the whole thing. In the thing. plastic. Um, yes, it is in plastic. It's in plastic, yeah. Uh, and so I stood at Total Wine the other day and thought about, like, I wanted to go get the uh, very old Barton because it's in. Is it plastic or glass? No, oh, it's glass. Yeah, it's, it's and a, I wanted that. A, yeah, yeah. Um, and the Evan Williams is also in glass, the big one. But yep. the Heaven Hill is in plastic, and I just I didn't want the plastic. I didn't. So I ended up getting a regular bottle of Heaven Hill. There is something about I plastic. I mean, it's 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 a it's a touch trashy, tra- trashy. It's a touch trashy, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think that's the uh, the sacrifice. I don't know what they what they do over there in Bardstown to like. It, it's, it's funny. I would love to know the difference between uh the heaven hill green label i mean i know that there's an age difference but between like barrels between that the evan williams black the evan williams white label the jw dant and then the uh the other bottle of bond that i'm that i'm spacing on uh 
Oh, JTS Brown. Like, yeah. like those, those are all heaven Hill. They're all like four to six year bourbons. I would love to know if, what, if there's any rhyme or reason, or it's just like, yep, it's Monday. We're doing green label. Oh, and it's six years. We do it. Oh, it's Tuesday. It's, it's Evan Williams black label Wednesday. It's JTS Brown. Like they just sort of like run it through. Cause I've done a little bit of the, the tasting side by side and they're all like super like bottom shelf. I, I can't tell any significant differences. Yeah. I, I think the difference really comes from the, uh, you know, the 80 or 86 proof, uh, right. ver- versus the hundred proof, uh, iterations. Right. But, but if you compare across the, the same proof, well, level, it's, it's, it's hard to, to tell. Yeah. Uh, I've tried to proof them down. So I've taken like the hundred, the hundred proofs and, and brought them down to 80. And like, I, I don't know. I mean, they all are of the same type. I can't tell any difference and they're all, they're all delicious and they're perfectly suitable for a glass with ice, but you're drinking no ice, right? No, I don't have any ice. No, you too, John, no ice. God, the, the size of the, uh, the, 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 the overall like fortitude of your, of your, your manly sort of personas <laughs> is, our gastrointestinal fortitude. Your gastrointestinal fortitude is it's magnificent. Well, I, I, will, I guess I'll take the compliment. <laughs> it's not what I'm going for. But... <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're we're completely off the rails. Uh, no, that's fine. That's what, fine. That's what we're drinking. Uh, up next, we do a little thing called one thing. Yeah, we got to put the music in too. There it goes. That was the music. I am in charge, so I get to pick who goes first. Josh, you get to go first with one thing. Okay. Um, my one thing is a game that Ashley and I played last night. So as as I've said before, we are taking turns uh, choosing activities from night to night. And last night was my pick. And... The, the the previous board game was uh, horrified, which was my one thing last time. Uh, this time it was Tiny Epic Quest by Gamelin Games, and this is an unimaginably tiny box um, that has an unimaginably large game inside it, and it consists mostly of different cards. There are map cards, there are quest cards. Uh, there's a card that tracks the magic level. There's a card that tracks the 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 score of the game and the basic gist of this game is you are uh, selecting a quest from the uh, the quest cards that are face up and you're sending your uh, three little meeples across the map and getting them into position such that they can either uh, invade or, or, or explore a temple or learn a spell or fight a goblin uh, or some something else. There, there's a few other minor things, and 
once you have exhausted all of your movement options, then it goes from day phase to night phase. And that is where you roll dice and you alternate between player one and player two rolling dice and seeing uh, if you're able to damage the goblin or advance in the temple or advance the magic track so that you learn a spell. Um, so it's a push your luck kind of thing. The downside is that you might roll uh, something that damages you. And if you take enough damage, then all of your guys, all of your meeples come back to your castle empty handed. Um and you reset and you've gained nothing. So you wasted a turn. The game is over after five iterations of day-night cycles. So five turns. And at the end of the game, you add up your points from quests completed, from temples explored, from goblins defeated, and from legendary weapons won. And uh, whoever has the highest number of points wins. And it was uh, a lot of fun. It says on the box that you can you should play it in about an hour. But it did take us about two hours to learn the rules and figure out what the game was actually what what we were supposed to actually be doing. Um, and that's no slight on the rule book. The rule book is really complete and, and well organized and well written. Um, but it it I was not expecting such a complex game from such a small box. And my assumption was we could just jump into it. And that was uh, foolish. of me. <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> but all that said, um, that was a really fun game. I, I liked it a lot. It's going to really satisfy folks who are into like area control games or, or uh, planning out your movements. Uh, the way movement works is there are five cards. Uh, one of them is you move one, one card away from where you're currently at. Another one is you move diagonally. Another one is you move up and down. But each time you move, you can only move one of your three meeples. And so you have to plan out how you're going to spend those movement turns so that you can get your meeples into position to best take advantage of the night phase. Um, it's fun. It's, it's like two little games in one that are combined into this really interesting uh, sort of combination of area control and press your luck style dice rolling. So if you like strategy games, if you like dice rolling games, if uh, for me, the flavor of this game was the best because everything about it aesthetically screams the Legend of Zelda. Um, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, oh, it's, and it's, it's, and it's wonderful. You can play it solo. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, you can. Yeah. You could play it solo. So it comes with a solo variant uh, in the rule book. Uh, Ashley and I had fun playing two players and you could play up to four players. The, the other cool thing about it is that the map cards are double sided. And so you could flip the cards over to the, the dark world side and that amps up the challenge a bit. I think there are more goblins, um, fewer opportunities for treasures and things like that. Um, so anyway, uh, that's, that's a long winded review of tiny epic quest from gambling games. And, and I give it a, a big thumbs up. That's sweet, man. I, I've always been really intrigued by the the tiny epic line, and this mm -hmm. one sounds like uh, the kind of thing that that I would get the most out of. I think uh, because of the the map the mappiness of it. Yeah, it's funny. We finished it, and and Ashley, one of the first one of her first like uh, initial review remarks was Luke will really like this game. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Sweet, man. Yeah, so All you'll right. dig it. 
I, I think I, it was it last night or night before that I texted you guys that I might need to buy Horrified on the basis of like yours and Evil Ed's comments. Mm-hmm. This one, this one might actually like 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 usurp that because I think there might be more uh, replayability and flavor to it. Is it, like, do you think that that's true? I think that's true. I don't know about flavor because both of those games are are rich little experiences. But uh, as far as replayability, I mean, um, I don't know. I think you could make good arguments for either being more replayable. Uh, Horrified, you could play one player pretty easily as well. Right. Um, I do think that Horrified is about 50 bucks, and the tiny Epic games run about 20 or 25 but so, you get like but, all the super miniatures with horrified, right? Like the presentation. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, I, I think the Epic games line has made good use of meeples in a lot of their games. Um, and the cool thing about these meeples is that there are holes drilled where their hands would be. So you could put the sword that you have won into one hand and the shield that you win in the other hand. And you've got a little meeple with a sword and shield and, and it just looks neat. That's awesome. So anyway, I, I, I think if you are more interested in like a, a lighthearted fantasy adventure flavored game, go with the uh, Tiny Epic Quest. And if you want some horror monsters, some, some horror movie goodness in your life, go, go with Horrified. Um, and we do have one other Tiny Epic game that I haven't played yet called Tiny Epic Galaxies that I'm excited and, and eager to dig out. So... Uh, we'll be playing that probably the next time my my choice uh, comes around. <laughs> that means you're up that, next. That's week. it for me. Oh, okay. I, I, sorry, I was just adding uh, the tiny epic quest to my Amazon wish list. <laughs> awesome. uh, yeah, no, no, seriously, dude. Like that's that same seems like the game that like the kind of solo situation that that I would get a lot of fun out of. So. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna snag a copy of it. Uh, okay, so it's me though, John. Is that right? That would be the way the wheel spins. Yeah. What about? All right. <laughs> so my one thing is uh, I might have used it previously as a one thing, but it's uh, the HBO series Barry. Uh, I've been rewatching this show uh, over the past like. I don't know, three or four days. I've mowed through the first season. It's a series that only has two seasons and it has been picked up for a third, but it's been reported that the third season has been delayed by all of the craziness associated with COVID-19. And it's the best uh, in terms of like, like, and I know that sounds like ridiculous. Uh, It really like in terms of a, a, of a dark comedy show with a lot of heart. Like Barry really is one of the best. Like, I I don't know other, other shows that would scratch necessarily the same itch of having like laugh out loud, funny moments with just like outright horror and terror sort of like embedded in them. Uh, it's such a good show and I love it. And, uh, I wasn't necessarily like a uh, like a Bill Hader fan before Barry, but I'm I'm on I'm on the Bill Hader like fan club after watching it. And I, I watched the watched the show uh, a year or so ago, I guess probably a year ago. 
But uh, like we renewed our HBO subscription and I just started mowing through it again and I'm loving it. And uh, John mentioned to me in a text message that like HBO and I, I guess I noticed this after the fact, like they've released a lot of their shows uh, streaming for free. And this is one of them. And so if you want to watch a dark, messed up, uh, like post uh Middle Eastern sandbox uh, warrior turned assassin turned uh, L.A. actor tragic comedies. Check out Barry. It's really good. That's a very specific niche. Nice. It's, it's, it's so funny. Like, so, so the Fonz, like, uh, like Henry Winkler is the acting coach there's a whole slew of people that are in the show that you would recognize from other stuff. Uh, he's the one that like stands out as an immediately recognizable name, but it's just, it's so good. Uh, it's funny and it's really sad and it's kind of beautiful. The Luke Dodd trifecta. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> It's true. No, so we got, we'll have to. Anyway, cut that that's out. my one thing. No, <laughs> no, it's it's totally true. The trifecta that that is the uh, that is the trifecta. But I, I I can't remember if I've used it as a one thing before. But have, yes. it's worth recycling. So yeah. so that's my one thing. Uh, John, what you got? Uh, I rediscovered that I liked drawing over the weekend. So my one thing is just nice. pen and ink art. And using some micron pens to do some pen and ink sketches like I used to do. That's all. When we put these three things you together. Did some st- oh. oh, you no, you did some stippling. The the quick little sketches you sent us. Oh uh, yeah, I did some uh pointillism, I guess, is what it would be called, according to friend of the show, Justin Stewart. <laughs> uh, what I is the it. term you use? Pointillism? Pointillism, where you the entire drawing is made up of dots. Like I made those with just putting the pen down as a dot and moving on and making it darker, or thinner, or what have you. Yeah. So it's been a lot of fun. So, so, so when you do that, uh, do you, uh, do you do any sort of outline before you start with your dotting? Or does the dotting like take place as like sort of the rough draft that you like? progressively put more and more dots on the page that's more of it there yeah like the dots themselves are the outline the way i've been doing it which could be wrong for all i know uh because i was just kind of experimenting with it was i would kind of rough out the outline of it with a series of dots and then i would put more dots where i wanted it to be darker and you can even fix it with dots and make it look kind of like edgy and scritchy if you mess up a spot What's the what's the term one more time for what you call that? Pointillism. Pointillism. Yeah. I love it, dude. I heard, I heard like, it from an I artist. A friend of mine. One of my friends in high school, that's what that's how she did like a handful of like things when we were in art class and I thought it like it's such a it seems like it's such a time intensive approach, but it seems like it's also something that is corrective is that like I don't know like do you feel like if you screw up like it's pretty forgiving yeah so that was the the reason I kind of started doing it over the weekend because I was starting with textures and I had done a couple textures that involved a lot of dots like they were supposed to be kind of like salmon skin or even elephant skin 
things that may have like little pokey dots in them. And I thought it was kind of fun to do that, but it was hard with the lines that were coming in underneath them to fix some of the stuff. And so I just kept doing the dots and I realized that I could fix the dots with dots. <laughs> but that's awesome. that. I'm just, what do ex- you, I'm just like, no, ex- no, I want to, I want to keep talking about it, dude. Oh. Like what, what kind of, uh, like what kind of pin, like what do you, what do you use when you like, cause you're getting back into this. Like what's the, what's the hardware you're, you're popping out. Is it a Micron 0.02? I've got the Micron like uh, 0.005 to 0.08. 0.05. So 20 or 0.2 millimeters to 0.5 millimeters. Uh, I've got some colored okay. ones that are all at 0.3 millimeters. So I used to do this a lot when I was in art class as a kid. Like pen and ink was my favorite thing. And I made a couple of 4-H pieces. In it, and I just wanted to see if I could even remember how to do it. And I started too big and started trying to draw like big birds and stuff like that. And then I realized that I needed to probably start with the textures again. So I made a few fish scales and feathers and things like that. And then started with the pointillism and it just seems relaxing. It's nice to rediscover something that you had put away maybe because of stupid reasons in the past where you were like, Oh, people told me this was dumb and I wouldn't make any money with it. It doesn't matter if I can make money with it. It's just as fun for me. Yeah, hell yeah, man. <laughs> That's my anti-capitalist screed for the night. <laughs> here, here. When we mix these three things together, though, what do we get, Josh? Uh, we get an Irish smoothie. <laughs> Full of, of cider and bourbon? That's right. No, we get one thing. One thing. So tonight we're talking about a story that I picked for the end of the season because uh, from the preface, the introduction by Rusty Burke and the end of the trail, the Western stories by Robert E. Howard, the Bison Press book, he really had a lot of high praise for vultures of Wapatan or Wapaton, whatever we're going to call it here tonight. Um, talked a lot about how it was sort of a classic Howard story, really kind of emphasized what he could have done with Westerns if he had continued in that vein. And it just sounded like sort of a, a really awesome thing to maybe end the season with and would have a lot of gravitas for us to pick through. It's a story that has sort of a convoluted history, it seems like. It was published first in True Action Stories. Am I saying that? Is that the right title for the magazine? I think so. And it was published in December of 1936. And the weird part is, is that it was presented with two endings. Did you read about that at all? While you guys were reading the story? Yeah. So it ran in December 1936 in Smashing Novels, is what Mark Finn says. Sorry, Smashing Novels. And he says that the editor decided, uh, according to Mark Finn, in his infinite wisdom to run both endings in the magazine, even though he agreed in print that the shorter, darker ending was better. So I'm not sure why you would uh, go go ahead and publish both endings when, <laughs> you know, you've already agreed with the author that one is the superior ending and, and should be printed. Uh, maybe it's just from a completion standpoint. This was after Howard died, right? right. When, when the story came out, I wonder so if that does maybe, have a lot to do with it is being like, here's what else he thought, like, you know, making it more about, here's another, yeah. Yeah. Another way that, that Howard presented the story. Yeah. Uh, but he wrote this, Howard wrote this in 34. Uh, 
and it took about two years to find a place to to publish it, according to uh, Mark Finn. Yeah, it sounds like he worked on it for quite some time and couldn't find a home for it because I think we can all agree that this story does have some blood and thunder to it. Uh, there's definitely some shooting and some killing. It's a bit darker than maybe the traditional classic Western of this period. Yeah, I would say so. What do you think, Luke? Is this darker than you expected it to be? I would think so. I mean, it has a lot of uh, twists and turns to it, too. Like, that's the thing that stands out to me about this story is just uh, how much we get uh, shifts in the plot. Like, like I found myself having a hard time deciding like exactly like what I should be rooting for. Not necessarily yeah. who. Like it was pretty clear who I should be rooting for, uh, because Corserin is the is the protagonist. Like basically from the second or third chapter on. Like as soon as he's introduced, but he's he's kind of a butthole in a lot of ways. <laughs> and and I mean he's he's that classic sort of like uh, antihero. But I think the way that he's painted as a hero is like how I have the most, I don't want to say qualms, but like, I don't find it as compelling the way that this dude is like painted as a hero. Like, it seems like his, his moral code is, is a little bit skewed, right? But he's the dude that we're like behind the whole way through like the 10 or 11 or 12 chapters, uh, the way that it plays out. So. Yeah, it's a it's it, it is not it, it is not a black and white story. I he, he, go ahead, John. Oh, I guess I that that that's interesting to me that Luke says that because in my mind, I think that's sort of the point. I guess to me, it's kind of noiry, and I think that Rusty in his introduction. I don't know if you all. I don't know if you could find it anywhere other than in this book, but there's some discussion about how this would fit in very well with Dashiell Hammett and the types of stories that he wrote that sort of noir version of a Western story. And I, I guess that I was quite taken with the fact that even Cochran in the story, like he's not a good person. He's a pretty big piece of garbage from the outset. Like he just sh is shooting people constantly. And I think that that drew me into the story that this is sort of a noir, that this it's not a detective story necessarily, but there's suspicion and mistrust at every angle. Um, the guy that we're identifying with, you have to sort of put aside some of your own moral qualms to keep in in concert with him because he's not a good dude. And it fits in with, I think, sort of the overall Howard Ouvoir. Like he, his point is that nobody is good, maybe, <laughs> in the West. Well, what would happen if you took the story and set it in the Hyborian Age nations of, of Howard's uh, pseudo world history. So that that's something else that Rusty actually kind of talks about. It says here to quote this mistrust of everyone verging on paranoia harks back to Howard's earliest sword and sorcery story, the shadow kingdom in which King call learns that serpent men with the ability to assume the appearance of any human have insinuated themselves into his palace and that absolutely no one can be trusted. Mistrust of appearances and in particular mistrust of authority is a constant theme of Howard's work, another characteristic that would have made him more at home in the hard-boiled detective field than the Western, where the good guys wore white hats. Interestingly enough, though, 
when we first meet the sheriff, isn't he described as wearing a, a white hat with with an ivory yes. handled Colt revolver? He is pointedly colored with the color white, I feel like. In a Vince Gilligan kind of style. Like white is a theme for Middleton, the sheriff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and, and, and I think and, and, oh, oh well I was the, just gonna say the the white the 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 theme of white is one of these Western tropes that gets subverted in the story. Also, Sorry, Luke, go ahead. like, no, 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 you're fine. The other thing that like, uh, that, that stood out to me when we're first introduced to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, Middleton, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like he is like, there's a term that's used like slide of hips. He's basically like a very narrow figure. He's very, uh, like straight legged, uh, and that also sort of ties into uh, how we might perceive a hero to be portrayed in a lot of these westerns too. Yeah, he's cut like a man, broad at the shoulder, narrow at the hip. Yeah, he's triangle shaped, right? Yeah. Like, like yeah. you see the uh, like the uh, the the entrance to the bathroom at some sort of like Art Deco like steakhouse. It's it's that kind of like shape for getting into the men's room. Whereas a lot of the other characters, Cochran included, uh, they cut different figures. I think he cut sort of a grimy, pantherly, sort of wiry figure, whereas there's other people who are just described as like, he's as big as a mountain and twice as hairy. Uh, <laughs> like there's big hairy dudes that are just minors. So uh, yep. there's a lot of play with that kind of stuff. I, I don't know. I found that very interesting too. Maybe we should summarize the story. We haven't really done that, I guess. (laughs) So we have a sheriff who is losing control of his town and he uh, enlists the help of a Texas gunfighter who it turns out is murdered by an even more ruthless Texas gunfighter who is then brought into the plot to ostensibly be the deputy of Wapaton. But uh, we later find out that the sheriff is more than he led on. Right, guys? Yeah, he's actually the leader of the gang that seems to be driving the action in this city. They're called the Vultures. And they pick off gold as it goes in and out of town. They're harassing citizens and murdering them. And secretly, Sheriff Middleton is actually their leader. And it's been all cloak and daggers. Nobody knows who's in the Vultures and who's out. The whole city is just kind of at suspect point like everybody is looking at each other very warily and there's murders and fights constantly and nobody knows who to trust and this is where steve cochran texas gunfighter kind of walks into and of course cuts a very conan-esque sort of path for himself he's a pantherly gunfighter rather than sword fighter and he's able to discern certain things that others aren't yeah and so that element of being more in tune with the wild, more less in tune with civilization, more in tune with the, the wilder natures of, of humanity is what gives uh, Cochran the, the edge. Cochran? Corcoran? So we've talked a little bit about what we kind of like about this story. I know that, that for me, I do enjoy that sort of noir aspect. I get the feeling the whole time that 
nothing is going to go the way that any of them plan. And I enjoy that kind of story where you're just along for the ride. You want to see how the spool unravels and unravel it does towards the end. Middleton has got this whole plan where he's going to steal all the gold from his gang anyway and sneak out in the middle of the night and set everybody up. And he thinks that Krakorin can help him with that. And, of course, he's going to double, quadruple cross him in the middle of all of it anyway. But Kokorin just can't be beat and ends up surviving the whole ordeal. But I wouldn't say that he wins. And that that sort of Nawari end is one of the things I liked about this story where he's fallen in love with a woman named Glory. And he loses her in the process of surviving the double cross that inevitably comes for him. But uh, he definitely doesn't win. Like Even though he survives, he doesn't take any gold because it's all tainted for him. Uh, he loses love, and he kind of loses a little bit of his soul, it seems like. It was something that I liked about Vultures of Wapaton. Yeah, I, I liked the fact that the way this unspools, like you said, um, kind of feels like it could be a black and white, gritty, noir film. There's So... You guys are way more into the noir stuff than I am. But in my head, what makes a noir is no discernible good guys, no discernible bad guys. Everyone is just kind of uh, shades of gray. There is a uh, a femme fatale who either acts as a temptress or, or does something to uh, alter the protagonist's trajectory in the story and those elements are both present within this i would say i would agree with that yeah so is are those the qualities that make you think that 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 this fits neatly in like the western noir sort of subgenre or is there more to it that i'm missing what do you think luke uh yeah i think the 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 twists and turns definitely are part of it uh, and so having like a, uh, like a feminine driver of the plot who ultimately like, like meets an untimely end as part of it. And I think that the unreliable sort of like way that the narrative plays out is, is part of it too. So, like this story, I think, is intentionally on the part of Howard, like a jarring story. Like it's not, it's not something that's meant to keep you like content and following along. It's supposed to like keep you bouncing along from chapter to chapter. I think another aspect of noir that sticks out for me in this story is everybody's reaching for something. Everybody wants something more than what they have. I think that's sort of a classic characteristic of a characteristic of a good noir is that in in actuality a lot of these people are probably living within their means quote unquote or should be more content with what they have or could find a different way to get out of the hole that they've dug themselves into but for expediency's sake they're going to take the quick edge and they're going to try and shave some time off of redemption shave some time off getting rich shave some time off of uh, finding love in some instances and they're all just reaching for something that's just a little too unobtainable for them and maybe they don't deserve in the end 
and they all kind of get what's coming to them. Yeah. Do you think they deserve it? The fate that they ultimately meet? I mean, Glory, I would say, doesn't deserve necessarily the fate that she gets when she's killed in cold blood by Middleton. Um, That's not to say that I prefer the alternate ending where it seems that she and Steve ride off into the sunset together to get married at the first town that they find. But uh, I think that's part of what makes it a noir as well is somebody has to get something they don't deserve. Yeah, but do you, I mean, like, the way, the way that she ultimately like uncovers the truth about uh Corser and or or Corker and like like she's kind of a dummy the way that she plays up her like I had better faith in you and then ultimately she runs around kind of like just just explaining herself to people that ultimately it's like okay bang bang you're going to get shot that to me seems a little bit helpless and like her as a character, I found a little bit, uh, I'm not going to say problematic, just, just, just lacking. Like I would have liked to have seen a more powerful, uh, protagonist that Corsurum would have fell in love with. I, I understand what you're saying for sure. I found her a little bit wanting, I think in the first half of the story where we see her about to brain somebody with a, a cue ball, like right. that to me, that was a very Howardian woman, right? Like that's a very Howardian archetype. This woman that she has her own agency and she's pushing her own plot. By the end, the second half of the story, the way she's described even for me kind of falls flat where it's like, and she's, she's dulled in her senses in that feminine way. It, it, there were, there are some problematic phrases that are used to describe her. Absolutely. Um, that would be one of the areas that I definitely found wanting is that glory kind of comes unspooled in a way that I didn't much care for. I, I think it would have been fine for her to be disappointed to find out that Steve isn't who he seemed to be. Like, I think that could have been interesting, but the way it's executed is not the way I wanted, I guess. Yeah, I guess like I'm not putting myself immediately in the author's shoes but if she would have been betrayed or if something would have come closer to home i think that would have been a better way to like deliver the sting that would have sent her like 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 spooling out i honestly so when it started to come undone the whole story when everything starts to come untied the night that the the vigilante gang and the vulture gang are kind of coming together and there's going to be a fake jailbreak that ends up with this big gunfight. The Howardian expectation that I had of this story actually was that Glory would be the survivor. That she'd shoot Steve uh, and be like, mm. you should have been better. And I think that would have nailed the story in a way for me that it didn't get in it. Even though I didn't hate this ending and I like it vastly more than the other option. I think that would have been more interesting to see her be like, you're all a disappointment. This is all a disappointment. I like that a lot, dude. I mean, (laughs) I think that would have been uh, an extra step. Yeah. Yeah. To have her be like, sure, I'll run away with you and then just turn around and plug him in the gut. That being said, Uh, I do think this is a very cinematic story. Like when I read this, I see shades of like early revisionist western film i I, what do you think about that 
I like the description of Wapayton as the as Middleton and Corcoran are, are riding in like it's in this gulch. It's sort of uh, surrounded on a couple of sides by canyon walls and it's stretching out as if reaching away from the canyon walls, trying desperately to get away from where it is. Uh, that's the image that that sort of struck me about the town. Um, and so. As far as revisionist westerns, uh, again, those those uh, references to the white hat, the white gun that ultimately get uh, uh, turned on their heads were what kind of nailed it in in that subgenre for me. Um, was there anything else beyond beyond that? Like our hero being such a bastard. Do you think Corcoran is of a type with Conan or is there a difference between Conan and Corcoran? And I asked this because when Middleton has met up with Corcoran and is, uh, given him the offer to be the deputy of Wapayton, uh, Corcoran says, or it's described. He, he hated Glanton, who is the gunfighter that he kills with the merciless hate of his race, which I think is Texan. I think Howard is saying, his race is Texan, um, which is more enduring and more relentless than the hate of an Indian or a Spaniard. But toward the body that was no longer animated by the personality he had hated, he was simply indifferent. He expected someday to leave his own corpse stretched on the ground, and the thought of buzzards tearing at his dead flesh moved him no more than the sight of his dead enemy. This is, this is the thing that reminded me of Conan. His creed was pagan and nakedly elemental. A man's body, once life had left it was no more than any other carcass moldering back into the soil, which once produced it. Like that seems like a very crom approach to yeah. life. I would agree. Yeah. This is the part where but, Middleton is trying to convince him to bury Glanton after he's killed him. Right. Yeah. yeah. Middleton, uh, wants to hide the evidence of this murder. We, we find out in, in reflection, right? Like it's not, for any honorable reason that he wants to bury the body. He just doesn't want anyone to come across it and go, well, why didn't the sheriff do something about this? <laughs> like let's bury it and put a cross. And then everyone will think, okay, everything's fine with this, this dead guy by the road. I do th- agree with you. I think Corcoran does have a lot of Conan esque qualities, not just the pantherly tigerish of tigers, tigerish of him. Uh, he, <laughs> he has black hair and blazing blue eyes. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, he's got melancholies and mirth, and there there are a lot of similarities there. And I think that Middleton has some similarities to other characters we've encountered. This like quote unquote civilized man that knows the rules and is using them to his own ends. Uh, would you agree with that? I think so, but I'm I'm having trouble sort of um drawing to mind any specific examples. I guess I think of of, just like any wizard almost like being a sheriff in a town like this is almost like being a wizard where you can just be like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is the way it happened. Uh, (laughs) this is the way that guy died. Uh, you can just kind of like magic away your problems almost. And I feel like Middleton fills that kind of, uh, not Thulsa doom type role, but, but, you know what I mean? That that wizardly kind of role that we see in some of the Conan stories. Yeah, he's less like, to me in my mind, less like a wizard, but more like the 
um, the characters that are working in the background in the Phoenix on the sword to enact, enact this plot against the, the heroes. Uh, but ultimately the plot comes unfurled due to another bad actor in the, in the play. Yeah, he's, he, he definitely is a device like, like not necessarily in a totally, uh, negative context, but like the way that he's used is to advance the, the, the sort of plot that's going on between Corsarin and, and Middleton. Who who were you talking about just then? Uh, like Middleton himself, or uh, I'm sorry, what's the the big like bull wolf bull Mc, character? McNab. 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 Yeah. McNab, yeah. He, oh, I'm sorry. He like he is uh, uh, a machination. He's like Baltor. Yeah. Baltor. Yeah. He's the strong man, right? Yeah. Like he's he's kind of the like you said, the device that is the, the lever, I guess that's moving the plot forward. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to detract from it, but that's like that character really is like a propulsive element. He's not like, a. I mean, he's bad, but he's not necessarily the bad as opposed to Corcoran. Like, like he's just a propulsive force. Well, now that you mentioned the bad, it it makes me think about you know spaghetti western specifically the good the bad and the ugly which is the most recent one that i've watched where no one in that film is a good person right like even eastwood's character is is kind of a bastard he's an honorable bastard but he's kind of a bastard and i think that same sort of uh description could apply to all of the characters in this story there there are greater and lesser bastards within the vultures of Wapaton. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree. I think this could have easily been an Eastwood type story. Um, because even if you look at characters like Colonel Hopkins, ostensibly a civic leader who he makes the most money in town and all that, like he's more than willing to, to round up a vigilante committee and create his own justice system outside of the system. Like nobody in this story is a good person, uh, at all. And I think it would be very at home in that sort of revisionist or I don't know. Is that revisionist Western? Yeah, I think so. It's just that everybody is revisionist, right? Like everybody has shades of gray. Right. So it's hard to kind of keep the narrative like like focused. Well, what is the difference between a revisionist Western and a sword and sorcery story at at the core? Like. Getting past the trappings, getting past the, uh, you know, the setting, I guess. You know, one is American West, one is kind of this this lost era of history. Atlantis? But yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like where you're going here, dude. I think that the similarities between the revisionist Western and an SNS story are are close. And I think the difference between that versus the black hat, white hat, Western slash like epic fantasy. Like, I think there's a, there's a distance there. Like you see, uh, moral shades of gray with the revisionist Western and with the SNS, I think you see a focus on the individual versus the group. 
with both. I think you see more immediate like benefits and payoffs. I think there's something to be said there. Like I think the the revisionist Western and the sword and sorcery response to like uh, the 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 prior the the epic fantasy or the the larger grander story. I think it's the same. I think you're seeing the similar kind of response. I would say that if you were looking at sword and sorcery versus that revisionist history versus the white hat, black hat kind of thing, I think the white hat, black hat kind of thing is a fable you tell yourself to feel better at night, even as a nation, not just necessarily as an individual. But when you look at revisionist westerns and you look at sword and sorcery, there's more of a blood and guts kind of approach. Like you're looking at the fact that in this story, this is probably hewing a little closer to reality that back in the day, uh, there are points in this story where they talk about gold mining and talk about gold rushes and people going out and thinking they're all going to strike it rich and trampling over each other and shooting each other and just like death and destruction following in your wake. As you go across, there's even a description at one point of Cochran, uh, Krikorin that to me hewed very closely to uh, Jonah Hex, where it's like all that follows him is the acrid smell of gun smoke and death. And it's like that's what follows this civilization around. At this point, they're in the Northwest. This is described as sort of a Northwestern town. We're at the end yeah. of Manifest Destiny. And right. even in this like grimy, last gasp corner of all of this expansionism, like everybody's fumbling and, and trying and dying to get their last bit of wilderness and their last bit of gold and their last bit of glory. Um, and I think that is different than this black hat, white hat stuff that we've talked about before. I don't know that we've actually experienced during this season in any of the stories that we've read necessarily, but this idea of like telling ourselves this nice story about, this is how it happened. It was all the way it should be. And the good guys won and the bad guys died. But, but everyone is a bad guy. Right. Really, like and in th- real life. Right. The- and I think that hues very closely to sword and sorcery. If we look at the Conan type story structure, Conan's not a good guy. I, I think we can all agree on that, right? Like he has a code of honor. He is interesting because of the grays that he, he moves through and lives in. But he's not a simplistic good guy. Uh, He has a lot of different shades to him. I would say, though, that like that Conan is a morally. More structured character than uh, Corcoran, like like the like in, in my opinion, IMO. Like, like the, the, like anybody that gets super motivated by this story and like the, 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 the ethics that Corcoran lays out, I don't necessarily subscribe to it. Uh, I, I, I think that it's, it's problem, it's problematic the way that there's this feminist masculine, like issue that's, this dealt out here and it's, it's unfair on both angles. Uh, Conan's a cooler, like more logical and more admirable. And therein uh, lies, hero. I think therein lies the fantastic versus the reality that maybe that Howard is trying to dig at here. Like, I don't think he wanted to tell 
a Conan type story here. He didn't want to have that admirable character that we all look up to and say like, Oh, that guy, he's kind of cool. I think even he would have argued Corcoran is not a good person. I, I think that's what he wanted to express here is nobody at this point in time was good. Or, or good and bad are, are just, uh, sort of subjective, qualities based on the time in which is in question right like yeah. what's what's a good what 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 2020 people may judge as good or bad may be completely off center from what someone in 1893 would judge as good or bad i, I i'm spitballing here i don't know i'm i'm in uncharted waters good bad I'm the guy with the gun. I'm the guy with the gun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I feel like 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 Conan's uh, his ethical code to me is more meaningful than what we see with with Corthran. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like that dude. Like it's the whole like I'm not gonna hit a girl. And I don't I don't like I say that in a very like flippant tone. But that's the way that it's presented. Is like. Uh, this person has like double chromosomes. I'm not going to touch them. And there's, there's like this hesitancy towards violence that's laid out that we're supposed to rally around. And I, I I am, I, that's, that's not motivating versus the moral stories that were told with, uh, with 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 what we see with some of Conan, like like, do you guys see what I'm saying here? Absolutely. Like, like yeah. Conan, it's, it's, Conan it's, steals. Conan is not against going out and doing his own dirty work and stealing stuff. Corsarin, at one point, there's even like this layout of, I wouldn't steal it, but I'll steal from the guy that stole it, and that's different to him. And I think okay, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that that makes him a bad person. Like it's not different. Uh, you if you were a good person, you'd give it back to the people from which it was taken. And I think Conan would have maybe taken that step, that sort of Robin Hood esque aspect of saying like, "You took this from people you shouldn't have taken it from. I'm going to give it back to them." Conan, in a lot of his stories, when he's robbing, he's robbing people that they have more than they should have, probably. Anyway, Corsarin is not a good person. He's not an admirable so, character. Yeah. So like so go ahead Luke. Oh, I was just going to say I think I think Conan like he he uh would save the person in distress regardless of their 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 gender and like what we're seeing with Corsair and it's it's just a very very like coarse distinction of like dudes versus dudettes. Yeah. And and there's not a clear uh, motivation for for his code. His yeah. code seems convenient. Uh, <laughs> convenience, yeah. So so say either agree or disagree to the following uh, uh, description. So Conan is just agree. Yeah. yeah. Conan is ethical within the uh, ethos of his mind. <laughs> yeah, agree yeah, or disagree? Like like agree on a on a on a selfish like intrinsic value. Yes. Okay. Corcoran is just. 
Corcoran is just. So we agree. Yeah. Corcoran is ethical. No. Disagree. I don't think so. Yeah, no, he's not okay. an ethical so, man. Okay, so both are just and both are unethical. I like how you're parsing this. I I, I, I like this. <laughs> but there is a difference that that I I can't quite put an exact an exact stamp on. I think part of it and and this is my opinion here, but it's the quality of the writing. I think this I think this writing is fine. And I don't, like it's fine, it's good. I think it is sufficient, but I do not think it is like superlative Howard. Like what I'm reading here is not a motivating story. And that's, again, that's my opinion. I know a lot of people think this is a high watermark for like Howard's Westerns, but reading this, I was not motivated by the protagonist nor by the, the arch of the story. I get what he's trying to do with the narrative and I appreciate that. But I do not think that this is as like I don't think this is as good a story like on on a lot of metrics as compared to his fantastic stuff. I would argue that this is a good story but that it is not as well written as his other stuff. I agree with Luke on that. Uh I think the edi- is- the, the, the editorial pass over this to me seems odd. There are parts in this that to me seem very unHowardian. There's a lot of repetition in parts. Like I feel like there were multiple paragraphs in a row. There were blocks of text that could have been pared down and would have made it more efficient like I'm used to with him. Um I don't know if you guys got that same vibe or not. I do feel like this story is somewhat bloated. Yes. Um and we've had super good sword and sorcery and even Western stories from Howard. And, and I'm, I guess I'm sort of lumping the, uh, uh, some of the Eastern stories from Howard that we read at like El Borak. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, w- I would say those are even maybe like, uh, eh, I don't know about some of the Solomon Canes, but definitely the variety of the road East stories, smaller casts. Yeah, so smaller casts. Uh, the stakes are still large, but um, <laughs> but the uh, uh, I don't know. It's more succinct. Yeah, it's it's this is eighty it, pages, like John was saying. Yeah, like this, this is a long. This, this was longer than I ended. Had I? I mean, I looked at it before we went into the season, but it still it even felt longer than the number indicates. What is that? It's a no-bake cookie. Ashley just brought it to me. <laughs> oh, all the oats. <laughs> uh, it Sorry. just No, you're fine. It it <laughs> looked it looked long, but it felt longer than it it even is numerically. I would agree. I mean, it was I don't want to say it was boring, but it did have uh like like there were characters in the story that had characterization, but it could have been condensed into a uh, half dozen interactions and it could have been boiled down. And this is me playing the editor, but 
whatever. Like that's what we're doing. Like this right. story was was bloated in terms of what it was trying to say, and I get the 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 head fakes and the narrative structure, but the the characters themselves didn't merit like the total like word count on the page. My my final verdict on this is that it's a it's an admirable western story with a really good western like 1967 western movie script hidden in it. I I was more enamored with the characters and the setting than the actual plot itself. I I don't know what that says about me, but the the actual town of Walpayton seemed like it could have been uh, a, a Hyborian age uh, village. And right. so this, this part especially seemed apropos. So it says Howard is describing as Middleton and Corcoran are, are riding into the town. Men were washing gold dust out of the creek and out of its smaller tributaries, which meandered into the canyon along tortuous ravines. Some of these ravines opened into the gulch between the houses built against the wall. And the cabins and tents which straggled up them gave the impression that the town had overflowed the main gulch and spilled into its tributaries. I love that. The town is a flood, and it's it's spreading out into wherever it has to. He says, <clears throat> excuse me, buildings were of logs or of bare planks laboriously freighted over the mountains. Squalor and draggled or gaudy elegance rubbed elbows. An intense virility surged through the scene. What other qualities it might have lacked, it overflowed with a superabundance of vitality, color, action, movement, growth, and power. The atmosphere was alive with these elements, stinging and tingling. Here, there were no delicate shadings or subtle contrasts. Life painted here in broad, raw colors, in bold, vivid strokes. Men who came here left behind the, the delicate nuances. The cultured tranquillities of life. An empire was building, uh, being built on muscle and guts and audacity. And men dreamed gigantically and wrought terrifically. Like that. Holy crap. Like, have we ever heard Howard describe a town or a city in such powerful language? Like that, that is incredible. Here, here. Yeah. I, w- I would agree. Like that. That specific passage struck me more than any other passage within the story as like the most uh, I don't want to say grandiose, but like the most expansive sort of explanation of what is going on in the setting of the story. Like we see uh, the 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 world being brought forth like 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 the 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 resources and the world are being taken in such vibrant colors we see it 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 is weird like it is such a vibrant sort of like setting for the story and i mean we get a whole wide variety of characters my central criticisms are that uh, the story, like all of the various characters just aren't, I don't care enough about any one of them. I feel like they could be boiled down and I feel like, uh, it could be presented on a smaller stage. I like the overall big picture of the stage that's in the background, but I think that the central cast could be sort of boiled down to tell a better, like uh morality play. 
Yeah, what do you think, John? I guess that I compared this a lot to the Wild Bunch in that there is a large cast of people. There's a lot of names being thrown around. Um, I felt like it was in a very similar vein of of looking at the history and talking about bad people doing bad things in a way that we hold up as good almost. Um, I, I agree with Luke in a lot of ways though, that this story could have been pared down in several different ways. I think that my, my holdup in condemning it maybe is that I wish that I could see this through the eyes of a 30, a 1936 person. To, to read this story without having seen Unforgiven or The Wild Bunch or all these other things that I have been influenced by in terms of my Western palette. And I wonder what I would have thought of this story back then. Because my impression of it compared to its, its ilk of the time in 1936 and its publication is that I feel like it would have stood out. It would have been kind of weird to read this story back then. I, for what it's worth, I think this story is better than Stagecoach, which, or, or Stage to Lordsburg, which we read and, and enjoyed. Um, and that story we talked about being full of archetypes. This story, I, I, I don't think it's full of archetypes necessarily. I think it's full of characters that, uh, seem out of time to me. Yeah. So, so yeah, John, I, I wonder if I was a, a, a 1936 uh, reader of, of this magazine, if I would feel differently. So it's funny that you say that uh, because I was just looking up the date on our, our web page for uh, the, the Lordsburg story. Like this to me is the inferior story versus the, the Haycocks story. Right. Like Ernst Haycox, that's the, the author. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I think the, 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 the Lordsburg, like uh stagecoach story to me is, uh, I think it's the best story we, we read all season. I really liked mm-hmm. its archetypical depictions of things. And I think that it had shades of gray without complication. And I think the, Howard's story that we're tackling here is overwrought. And that's, that's my, that's my central criticism is I get what the narrative is going for, but I don't necessarily care about any given protagonist the way that I do about a simpler story like the, the stagecoach, uh, Lordsburg story. Mm -hmm. How about you, John? I, I definitely feel what Luke is saying there. Like, this is a little overwrought in some ways. Uh, are you asking me more about, like, what's my favorite story that we've read this season? Well, I think this is a good chance for us to transition into a uh, a look back at the season, given that this is the last story that we have programmed. It sure is. So, uh, so yeah. I guess when I'm trying to think about it, the two things that come to mind are maybe a man called horse and even trap of gold. Like they were both shorter stories. They're both non Howardian stories that we talked about this season, but there was an expediency to trap of gold that I, I quite enjoyed. And 
even though I was very surprised by the ending, which I think I, I even extrapolated upon in the episode, I thought somebody would die, surely. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there, there was a lot of interesting notes in that story about about the Western life, the frontier life, and that idea of trying to find a better future for your progeny that I enjoyed. And A Man Called Horse, I guess I found it somewhat simplistic, and I don't know if that's part of being having been introduced to it through that like chapter or uh, grade seven sort of PDF <laughs> that we used <laughs> yeah. for it. Uh, but there was, there was a lot to that story that I also enjoyed. So I guess those are the two that are on my heart. Now that you asked that question, um, those are the two I would lift up right now. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think that, uh, trap of gold, like, like to make it, like commendable versus the Howard story we're reading. They're different stories, but that trap of gold story is so much the intimate story. Like you, you still don't know a lot of the specifics of that character, but you know, such broad sweeping statements of that character that like you get just like little glimpses, like almost like Polaroid pictures of what, what the world is like for that person that it makes everything so visceral. And again, like the story that we're reading here, Corker and we don't, I, I myself didn't have any visceral connections to what that dude was facing versus what the, the miner was facing in trap of gold. What, uh, the, the fellow that was with, the uh natives in uh man called horse was facing like or or even like the the gunfighter in uh the the stagecoach story like he was an enigma but the love that he felt for the uh you know the madam was was more palpable i <laughs> like I felt more love between those two characters than I did between like glory and what, uh, what, what we see here with Corcoran, like, like what Corcoran we, we, we see here, like, like drunk Corcoran saying, I love you. And, (laughs) and he can't like, like, and as opposed in the stagecoach story, we have, uh, the, 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 the badlands character. I can't remember his name. Uh, badlands bill. Uh, like him and the madam, like they're like in a weird apocalyptic, like, like star night where they're out in the, uh, in the hinterlands and they're having this communion in the darkness. And it's, 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 it's very existential. Like, like they are two individual bodies sort of connecting with one another and the happy ending that plays out in that story, I could not be happier for that happy ending. But the happy ending in the the Howard story, the Wapaton story, I didn't want that at all. Like <laughs> like like this this dude didn't need to be happy. Right. Yeah. If we're talking about characters I connected with, I would I would go towards Breck Elkins. If we're talking about okay. what I think is good, I, I would pick some different stories, but I, I really like that Breck Elkins stuff. I know that it wasn't the necessarily the favorite of the Chromecast, but 
it, it tickles a funny bone in me. So uh, I maybe good. Yeah, I can I can also point towards it uh, if I'm getting the opportunity here. Yeah, it was a good time. Like it, it was reminiscent of of the boxing season, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, and it sort of blended the boxing with the westerns. I liked it. It was I, fun. I think it, it but, just shows an interesting side of Howard. I think we all think of him as this very serious, melancholy driven, suicidal, like tragic character. I think there was a lot of funny in that guy, which makes sense mm-hmm. for somebody that's yeah. in that mindset as well. I think that somebody like Howard would have a lot of humor in him. Because he wouldn't want other people to feel the way that he felt a lot of the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. How about you, Josh? Uh, uh, Sort of taking the other side of the coin, I really love old Garfield's heart. And this whole notion of a weird Western. That that is where I think my mind is uh, right now. Um, And this notion of a... Uh, an Indian shaman implanting the heart of a god inside a uh, a, a Texas pioneer, uh, such that he will live for as long as he chooses to live until his head is is shot uh, or removed from his body. Like that—that that is that is incredible, and the whole sort of feeling of that story, the the passing of of an era from exploration to this urbanization uh, that old Garfield represents that, that story it's melancholy. Uh, it's, it's not scary, but it's got a little bit of horrific element to it. Like I, I could see us hanging around a fire, drinking some beer and listening to, to Bob Howard telling us that story (laughs) that that was a horror, but the horror was really that the old West was fading away. Like I, I love that notion. Doesn't hurt that we had Rusty Burke on that episode. Yeah, no, that was that was great. <laughs> I hope you guys liked the season. Uh, I had a lot it, of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a lot of fun putting it together. I think the westerns are are a cool piece of Howard's history. Um, what about where we're heading next? We've we've kind of reached the end of this crossroads. We've got other roads in front of us. I I gotta say I'm feeling a tad bit manly. A tad bit manly, just a tad bit, very manly. As we as we walk up to this uh, crossroads, and we see a man playing a silver string guitar, well, about to lead us into the mountains, the forested mountains of Appalachia. Is it a dobro? Well, uh, I I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, season twelve of the Crown Cast is Manly Wade Wellman's uh, John the Balladeer. We're going to talk about Silver John stories that explore the folklore and geography of the Appalachian Mountains, which I'm so excited. Guys, I am so excited to talk about these stories. I cannot express the elation that I feel to finally get to talk about Manly Wade Wellman. And here's here's the truth. I had never heard of this author before uh, we met Bobby Derry oh. in Cross Plains. And Bobby D, uh, as always, brings these awesome little self-published books with him to to Howard Days. And I'm so bummed that we're not going to get to go this year. Uh, but in, uh, was it 2017, John, that you and I made the trip, the trip down there? No, it would have been 2016. It was before my 16? kid was born. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, 
we we met Bobby D there at the pavilion, and he he gave us some of his uh, self published works, and and they were just collections of different stories. And in there, he drew this bird that was saying, "Read more, Manly Wade Wellman." And I had no idea at the time, but he was doing a callback to "Oh Ugly Bird," which is a John the Balladeer story. And I'm I'm psyched. I'm completely beside <laughs> myself to get to talk about these. And and my hope is that we actually get to get Bobby D on the on the line to talk about Manly Wade Wellman and explain why it is that all those years ago we should have read some Manly Wade Wellman. You have lofty goals, my friend. And yeah. it it won't happen, but uh, it would be great if it did. So well, I I have to say I'm I'm uh, I'm excited. My my uh, enthusiasm is peaked. I'm titillated. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of good uh, good reactions here. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, yeah. this is good, dude. I like the uh, I like the direction. It's good. I'm Appalachia, but but tall tales plus plus like pulp pulpiness plus like. This is a character, or I should say, this is an author. So, so Manly Wade Wellman is someone that published post Howard, right? Like right, we're kind yeah. of we're kind of moving towards second gen type stuff. I yeah. love the idea of us like continuing a lot of our like uh, post primary pulp, like <laughs> post primary pulp. It's like lots of peas. I got the pop filter good thing, going on good here. Good thing you got that pop filter. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the idea of moving beyond the primary sources towards like the the literature that's out there. Like this is cool. Like there are so many Manly Wade Wellman stories that we can talk about. To talk about Silver John stories is a is a narrow focus, but to talk about that author as a as a topic is a great avenue to sort of open things up for us in our 12th and, season and i love the thought of of wellman being a second gen weird tales guy uh i'm not sure where the silver john stories were published but i i think that some of the early proto silver john tales were published in weird tales and i i just love this thought of 1950s authors writing in weird tales kind of carrying on this tradition that Howard and Lovecraft and, and Clark Ashton Smith started back in the thirties. I'm just, I, I am so excited to talk about this because it, it just opens up so many avenues for us to discuss. So this would be silver age. Is that right? Like, like if we so. were to sort of like, like if the, the principal pulps were twenties, thirties were golden age, Silver Age was like 40s to 50s, and then like uh, Bronze Age was like, you know, post 70s, 80s. Is that true? I think that's a great way to to think of it. Uh, what about you, John? I think that's interesting because my understanding of Manly Wade Wellman partially comes from comic books, which is where he contributes to the Golden Age of comics as a writer for some Captain Marvel adventures and even the Spirit oh, at different okay. points. So yeah, wait. What year is that? I mean, it's it's concurrent with what you're talking about. So like this 46, 48 kind of era. Um, okay. He would be writing in that portion of comic book history, but it sounds like he's a successor to some of the pulp history. So 
he just he's an interesting guy. I think it's going to be a very fruitful season. Dude, yeah. I'm I am every time we we sort of like make steps towards the uh post 30s materials. I love it. Like, like talking about Herbert's Dune. I love it. Like this, I love talking into the fifties. Anytime we've talked about a horror story that like spans post thirties, it's, I, I like talking about like the derivatives. So this is, this is exciting. And this, you know, uh, Luke, you're from the Ozark region, uh, or at least familiar with it of, of, uh, uh, Arkansas. Yep. And, and I grew up in the foothills of Appalachia and John, you, you know, the region yourself. Yep. Uh, I was, I was born so, in a corn plant though. So that's okay. That's <laughs> all right. You, you emerged as a young, you're a corn and, and were nurtured into the corn person that you are today. <laughs> and that's weird. Uh, and that fits right into our aesthetic. Uh, I'm just so excited to talk about these stories that are rooted in weird horror and and sword and sorcery and folklore of the mountains. Hell yeah, man. It'll be fun. This is this is a good a good season. Yeah. So that'll that'll be up next. Season 12. The Manly Road, the the John the Balladeer, the Silver Road. I'm not sure what we'll call it. No, Manly Road. Uh, the Manly Road, yeah. <laughs> the the Carolina Highway, Carolina like Highway. <laughs> oh, can we eat I Carolina barbecue every episode? Oh no, I, man! They make it with mustard and and put slaw in there. No, no, no. I'm I'm down with mustard, dude. Yeah, put right. it all put it all over me. I, I'm good with it. <laughs> all right, I guess I'm okay. <laughs> I'll try anything once, especially since <laughs> you described it that way. Yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where we're going next down this uh this pothole field highway that we call the Chromecast. before 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 we before we wrap up our our western road i gotta ask dr josh yep do we have anybody that's corresponding with us about awesome ass westerns that might like we do keep us going a little bit further down the road. Yeah. So if you want to continue a little bit further down the road to the West, listen to this voicemail from our, our pal, our Western shaman, evil Ed, who's going to guide <laughs> you a little bit further down the road. As we take a little detour into the mountains, he's going to take you further into the West and we'll play that voicemail now. Greetings, comrades. Evil Ed here. Uh, I figure I'll call in with my homework. It's hard for me to pick three of three favorite westerns, so I just picked three of my favorite westerns. First one up is Rio Bravo. This is a special one to me as I would get together with my grandpa and watch this once a week from when I was 10 until he passed away in 2008. This film also serves my introduction to John Wayne, which I've been a fan of him ever since. I really like how this film straddles the line between the comedy and drama and also how well it portrays the strength of friendship and loyalty. And it also helps that this film was a huge influence on John Carpenter's career. And you can see uh, strings of this film throughout a lot of his movies, especially Assault on Precinct 13. Next up is a terror in a Texas town. 
I'll start with the tagline that was used for a sim on the posters. Harpoon against sense gun. I mean, what more do you need than that? It's an unusual revenge western as it's about a Swedish weller, weller, I should say, trying to find out who and why his father was murdered, and it does a good job of giving you a three-dimensional feeling and the betrayal of the gunman that commits the deed. Highly recommend checking out this movie. Uh, I believe Criterion, yeah, that's right, Criterion put out a nice Blu-ray of this uh, last year, year before last, so it's easily uh, available. Uh, my final one is The Big Gun Down. I consider this one of the most underrated and criminally unseen Italian westerns starring the legendary Lee Van Cleef. I like this one as it's got a pretty interesting political angle to the story, plus it has some neat twists and turns in the plot. There currently is this three cuts of the film, but of the three, I recommend trying to track down the 110-minute Italian version. I'm a fan of East Wivick. Man, when it comes to Italian westerns, I'm all about Lee Van Cleef. Uh, the production company Grindhouse Releasing uh, put out a uh, Blu-ray special edition of this movie a couple years ago that I think you can still find if you go through their website. Uh, hope y'all enjoying everything out in quarantine land. Keep up the good job, and I'll see y'all on the dusty trail. Giddy up. Bye. If anybody else wanted to share their voicemail with us or their other thoughts about where we're heading and what we've done, how would they find us, Josh? They would be awesome dudes like our pal Evil Ed, and they would go to thecromcast.blogspot.com, where you can find uh, our episode archive and all of the blog posts that we've written regarding our episodes. They could email us at thecromcast at gmail.com, or they could tweet at us at thecromcast or Facebook. Uh, that is uh, at the Chromecast there as well. Uh, we're also on Instagram at the Chromecast, or you could call and leave a voicemail like, like Evil Ed did, and that is 859-429-CROM. And those are the various ways in which you could get a hold of us. We hope you've all enjoyed the Western Road, the Dusty Trail, the, the Road West, whatever it is that you want to call it. Uh, the Cowboy. I, I like not. Not having a definite name yeah. for each season. <laughs> the Cowboy it's Highway, fluid. the Bluegrass Parkway. Dude, the Cowboy Way. <laughs> um, we hope you've all enjoyed it, and we will see you next season on the Manly Road, the Silver Road, whatever it is that we end up calling it. So thanks for tuning yeah. in, and uh, stay safe. We'll see you a little bit further down the road to the Appalachian Mountains. Way. To the Crowdcast. Back out. He's the guy who's the talk of the town. With the restless gun Don't you bother to fool him around Keeps the vomits on the run, boy Keeps the vomits on the run You may think he's a sleepy type guy Always takes his time Soon I know you'll be changing your mind when you've seen him use a gun, boy When you've seen him use a gun He's the top of 
master Always cool is the best He keeps alive with his call 45 50 minutes of like and it would just I would I would get so much glee 